us during this uh, Life Foundations lesson. Amen. That God would speak to us and challenge us uh, today. Why don't we pray together? Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ, I ask, Lord, that your word will come alive to us today. I pray, Lord God, that you will speak, Lord, through the Spirit and through your word. Challenge us. Help us to grow in you, God. Help us to discover some things about ourselves. Lord, we want to grow in the knowledge of you and in relationship with you, Lord. God, let your word speak. Let your word work. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, you open up every ear to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church today. Every mind for understanding and every heart to receive. I ask it in your precious name, Jesus, and everyone says amen. Amen. You may be seated. We are um, in the midst of a series uh, entitled Embracing Promised Land Attitudes. And uh, we have been discussing the importance of replacing bad attitudes with good attitudes. Or, in other words, replacing wilderness attitudes with promised land attitudes, a right way of thinking. Amen. Brother, if you could turn this down just a little bit or give me more bass either way. Amen. So today's lesson is going to be the first half of a two-part lesson. It is going to be dealing with a uh, very particular attitude that, uh, believe it or not, is common among most people uh, because it's natural and it's easy for us to do. Now, I've made it clear since the beginning of this series that we choose our attitudes. Until we accept responsibility for our attitudes, we're never going to be able to change. I know that we are transformed by the power of the renewed mind through the power of the Holy Ghost, but until we decide to change our way of thinking, one of the writers call it stinking thinking, until we can get out of stinking thinking and, and into having the mind of Christ, we will never truly experience life transformation. And so this, this concept of personal responsibility is in no way to ignore the role or the background um, on our attitude. Uh, some of us struggle more with certain attitudes because of the culture uh, we're from, uh, the kind of homes we grew up in, the, the current environment in which we live, um, or even the kind of churches we attended in our formative years. Uh, so there are contributing factors to attitudes, but I want to make it very clear. You choose your attitude. It's not your personality. It's not, well, that's just the way I am. That is not an excuse for a bad, rotten attitude. Amen. Now, you may be familiar with this attitude that we're going to speak on today. Uh, you've probably heard the words of Jesus Christ about this specific attitude. Matter of fact, we'll read it in Matthew chapter 7, verse number 3. Jesus asked his followers during the Sermon on the Mount a question. In Matthew 7, verse 3, he says, Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log or the beam that is in your own eye? 
What was Jesus talking about here? He was talking about a critical attitude, a spirit of criticism. Maybe you grew up in a home that was forever picking at the imperfection of others and finding fault with anyone and everyone. Maybe you sat through countless Sunday dinners of roast preacher. I don't know. I hope you have not, at least since I've been here. I would appreciate that. I am not, I don't taste good for dinner, let me tell you. Maybe you were endlessly criticized yourself. And as a result of that, you now hear that same attitude coming through in the way you talk to your family or to your friends or to those, your coworkers. Possibly you struggle in many public settings to simply relax and enjoy what is going on because all you have known how to do is to inspect and examine and then form opinions about what you see. If these describe you at all now in the past or potentially the way it may be in the future, I want you to know that today's lesson is for you. And so I'm going to be transparent this morning, and I'm going to have to tell you that today's lesson is for me. Because one of the things that's the easiest for anybody to do is sit on the sidelines and criticize. So we're looking to replace this critical attitude. Now, next week, we're going to talk about what we're going to replace a critical spirit with. But today, we're going to talk about the attitude itself, the attitude of criticism. Now, we've been going back and forth between the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, between failure and victory, between wrong attitudes and right attitudes, between the wilderness and the promised land. That is basically how we've run this series of lessons. And one thing that we've learned from this is those who choose murmuring or bad attitudes as a lifestyle spend their lifetimes in a spiritual wilderness. Dry, barren, fruitless. Amen. We cannot enjoy the blessings of God if we are constantly murmuring against God or the people of God or the things of God. Numbers is the book that we've been studying, and Numbers chapter 12 records one of five events that led up to God's decision to thrust the children of Israel uh, in the wilderness because of that murmuring, which of course is that summary term that we use describing the five wrong attitudes. And uh, so this particular event we're going to read in Numbers chapter 12, and I'm going to... Um, it's going to be actually Numbers chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. If you want to mark your finger in there, I'm not going to read it all right now. I'm going to allude to some of the verses, and then we're going to cover some of the verses uh, consecutively. But let's begin with verse number 1 of Numbers chapter 12. It says this, Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. Now, this particular translation, which is the King James Version, says the Ethiopian woman he had married. Now, let's break this down a little bit, because this is the beginning of what we would call a critical spirit, a wilderness spirit. The word spoke against, the words spoke against are translated in other texts as criticized. So it could read that Marian, Miriam and Aaron criticize Moses because of this. No doubt, 
as Moses faced the burden of leading the Lord's people, that he needed leaders that he could rely upon to help him shoulder the load. And Miriam and Aaron were his brother and sister, and they were the people closest to Moses, the ones that he trusted the most, the ones that were there to be support for him. And for a while, it seemed like everything was going great, that Miriam and Aaron were on Moses' side. Then all of a sudden, they got off track. Don't know what it was, what happened. Uh, We're going to discover some things about this situation later in this lesson. But quickly and without warning, Moses became the target of their criticism. Now, this passage that that we're going to dive into illustrates a very significant point, a distinction that we made in earlier lessons, lessons, and this is that. We talked about a complaining attitude uh, about a month ago, and the complaining attitude relates to situations. You're just complaining about the circumstances, the situation that you find yourself in. However, criticism is not about situations. It's, it's not about things going on around you. Criticism relates to people. We complain about situations, but we criticize people. And that's exactly what has happened here. We've talked about the complaining already. Now they're criticizing the man of God. So here's the working definition that we're going to use in today's lesson. We're going to define destructive criticism. Destructive criticism. And it's defined as this. Dwelling upon the perceived faults of another with no view to their good. In other words, I have no intentions of praying about it or helping them with it. I'm dwelling upon the perceived faults of somebody else with no intentions to do anything good about it. So let's break this down. First, the word perceived. The reason why I say perceived faults is because my perception of what is wrong with somebody, what is wrong with you, is not necessarily accurate. It's perception. It's a perceived fault. There may be circumstances surrounding what I don't like about you that I don't understand. Or perhaps, have we ever thought about this? That the reason why we criticize is not really a problem with them, it's a problem with us. There's some things that I just don't understand. We become very, we can become very critical of others. And be entirely wrong in our opinion. Second, consider the words dwelling upon the perceived faults of another. That, in other words, that's all I think about is that individual's fault. And therefore, I criticize the individual. I, I'm just dwelling on it. It's not a fleeting thought that, fault that, you know, well, man, so-and-so kind of just tacky today, but I'm not going to say anything. It's out of my mind. I'm gone. Because we all have opinions, don't we? But if I just keep thinking about it and I keep thinking about it, then I say something to them and then, God forbid, I say something to somebody else. Now we got a whole other issue called gossip going on. And don't tell me, well, I told them so they could pray about it. 
What a bunch of hogwash. But that's, that's all you think about. So it is a perceived fault that we dwell on. It's a very critical attitude. And whether it's one fault in one person we lock into, or we find ourselves in the place where we just can't see anything positive or anything going right, we, with, with people, we're in danger of this wilderness attitude that Miriam and Aaron had called criticism. Now, let's ask ourselves some questions. Now, this is for introspection. Please do not shout out any answers. I don't want to know if you are a critical individual. And if you are, I probably already know. But I will not name names. Does this ever happen to you? You sit through worship service and you begin to make mental notes. Not notes on what I'm preaching. But you begin to look around at those around you and you start taking mental notes. Well, that's not the way I would do that. Well, why would they do something like that? Why would they wear that? Man, did they look in the mirror today? Well, that's not the song I'd sing in this situation. My goodness, why is he worshiping like that? Why is she doing that? And then you begin to think to yourself, I would never be like any of that. Now, I know that's never happened to any of you, but just hypothetically speaking. God made us to be analytical and to sift through data. The problem comes, because this is all natural to us, we see things that either we don't like or we feel or perceive that are wrong. It's natural to us because we're made to analyze. We have been created to, be, to sift through information. And that's the whole point about this. We ought to be sifting through the information and getting rid of the bad information. The Spirit helps you do that. But the problem comes is when we dwell on it to the point that we voice it. We say something. And everybody knows that once you say something, you can never take it back. And the lie that sticks and stones don't, the uh, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, doesn't apply. It's a, it's a lie. The most painful things I've ever experienced are words that have been said to me or about me. Bruises and broken bones heal. A broken heart and a broken spirit. That's another matter. That takes time. And so that's why the last part of the definition of criticism is that it's done with no view to their good. That's the difference. Now, somebody's going to ask the question, well, well, pastor, what, what if I'm doing it to help somebody? Let me explain the difference between destructive and constructive criticism. Criticism is only valuable when it falls into those one of, one of two categories. The first category is this. You are mentoring or discipling. And you have been given permission to point flaws out. Or the second category where it's constructive criticism, where it's helpful, where it is not a bad attitude, is if it's solicited by the individual to gain knowledge of ways to improve. If I say to you, hey, 
I'm trying a new preaching style the next few weeks. I want some feedback. Then when you give me some critical feedback, I use that as constructive criticism. But if I do something and I've not asked you and you decide you want to criticize me to help me out, you're not my pastor, you're not my mentor, you're not my disciple, and I have not asked you. Do you see the difference? And so we're in danger if we don't fall into those categories of having a bad spirit, a wrong attitude. Again, even in this, when it's permitted, the purpose of constructive criticism is to provide help through prayer and help into providing a solution. You're doing it for their good with their permission. Criticism outside of this is destructive criticism and it's wrong. A critical attitude is dwelling upon the perceived faults of another with no view to their good. And a continuous critical attitude toward those around me will consume all that is healthy and joy producing in my life. I will no longer be living in a promised land blessed atmosphere But I will find myself dry, barren, and fruitless in the wandering in the wilderness because I'm just have the wrong attitude. Can I tell you that nobody in this place is above developing a wilderness attitude of destructive criticism? Miriam and Aaron were no sloths. They weren't nobodies. They, they, they weren't you know, just, just part of the million-person entourage following Moses. They were there from the beginning. They were godly people, which tells us that we don't want to think that we're so far along spiritually that we couldn't be guilty of a critical or bad attitude. Everyone can struggle in this area. And again, I was transparent with you. One of my biggest struggles is that of a critical attitude. Now, there's a reason for that, and I've come to grips with that reason. That I have a very uh, wrong self-outlook. I perceive myself not in the right way. But despite all they had accomplished... As a team, Miriam and Aaron began to take Moses to task about his life, about his decisions. Miriam and Aaron criticized Moses because of the woman he married. Now, this is significant. We know from before Moses went to Egypt to bring God's people out of bondage that his wife's name was Zipporah. She was a Midianite. Now, the text doesn't say anything here, but that phrase, for he had married, seems to indicate that maybe Zipporah had died and Moses had chosen another woman as his wife. Evidently, Miriam and Aaron didn't like it. They didn't like the fact that he chose this person to be his wife. It could have been a personality conflict. It could have been a cultural conflict. Either way, this woman was part of God's chosen people heading out of Egypt in the wilderness. 
Was the fact that he chose a Cushite woman or an Ethiopian woman really the issue? Was that the problem? Is that is why they became very critical? His choice in a wife? Well, as we dig deeper, we're going to discover that's just a surface issue. And as we go deeper into the story, we find the root of the problem. Matter of fact, as we go to the very next verse, we find the root of the problem, verse number 2 of Numbers 12. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? And I love this last phrase because we hear it in every single one of these issues that the, the Israelites have. And the Lord heard it. You know, it doesn't matter if the individual you're criticizing doesn't actually hear it. The Lord heard it. See, Moses' wife was the surface issue, but the real issue was Moses' prominence, his position, where he was at with God. Their real beef was, how come Moses gets all the attention? You know, we're leading people too. Has not God spoken through us as well? That critical attack was an unjust attack against a godly man. And with that came consequences. God commanded, after this being said in verse number 5, God commanded Aaron and Miriam to join Moses at the tent of meeting. Verse 5, In a pillar of cloud, God stood at the doorway of the tent and called for Aaron and Miriam. God confronted them as Moses stood right there. He said in verse 6, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my households. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly and not in dark sayings, and he beholds the form of the Lord. In other words, God was saying, do you have any idea who you're talking about? I don't have another servant like Moses in all the world. I speak to him directly. Who do you think you're, uh, you are to be raising your voice in criticism against my chosen man? When they, why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? So the anger of the Lord burned against them and he departed. Now I think at this point, with that reprimand that Miriam and Aaron probably were pretty much scared to death. You see, he laid out the accusation for the critical attitude, scolded them, and then left. God didn't wait for an excuse. He didn't wait for an explanation. And guess what? They didn't wait long for consequences because there are consequences to bad attitudes. Verse number 10. When the cloud had withdrawn from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous as white as snow. As Aaron turned toward Miriam, behold, she was leprous. Just like that, Miriam was suddenly become as, as good as dead. 
Now, like we've learned over the last few weeks, God hates bad attitudes and wrong spirits. Aaron pleaded with Moses for his sister. He said, I beg you, in verse number 11, verse number 11 I beg you, do not account this sin to us in which we have acted foolishly and in which we have sinned. Oh, do not let her be like one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes from his mother's womb. Then Moses, always humble, always compassionate, turned to the Lord in verse 13 and said, Oh God, heal her, I pray. And seven days later, according to custom, Miriam was restored. I mean, what kind of lessons can we learn from this? God hates a critical attitude. There are consequences to our attitudes. This story about God's judgment of one critical person gives us insight into how God feels about this. Miriam's experience illustrates a number of principles about criticism that were typical of God's people in the wilderness. And can we be fair? It's typical of us as well. Here's the principle, first principle we learn. Criticism is wrong. Criticism is a sin. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to pull that one from the text. Criticism is a sin, and the passage says it's a sin. Aaron said, do not account this sin to us, in which we have acted foolishly, and in which we have sinned. Matter of fact, he said it twice. Critical attitudes are a sin. God hears the criticism and judges it as sin. And there are, we know consequences to sin. The first consequence to sin is criticism ruins our fellowship with God. See, criticism changes our capacity to sense His love and His presence. We're too focused on someone else to be focused on Him. And the primary consequence of a critical attitude is seen in our fellowship with God. Sin hinders our fellowship we cannot be in relationship and fellowship with God with active sin in our life. And we see this principle at work in human relationships as well. Having a critical attitude toward your spouse doesn't mean that she stop, he or she stops being your spouse, but it definitely affects the relationship. And that's exactly what happens with a critical attitude. He doesn't cease to be our God. His love for us doesn't change. But there's definitely something going on in the relationship that ought not to be there. We're not going to be as close as we ought to be. And Miriam and Aaron started off with criticism toward their brother, but they felt it most in their relationship with God. And you can tell, just by reading the scriptures, God's attitude toward their attitude. He was miffed. And so if you have a critical attitude, can I tell you it's hindering your relationship with God? Now, we all have rationalizations to justify a critical attitude. 
But we can only restore that right relationship with God that's been broken because of that bad attitude if we confess and agree with him that that attitude is sinful and we make the choice to change. So our criticism ruins our fellowship with God. Our critical attitude also hurts us as individuals. It takes a costly toll from us as spiritual beings. I mean, this is a biblical principle that we read throughout the entire book of the Bible. If we choose to sin, we choose to suffer. There are consequences to our actions. For our reaction, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Something's going to happen because we did something that we should not have done. Some consequences are simply worse than others. Sometimes we feel like we can get away from it, but even if we don't have the outside consequence, it's that relationship with God that hurts and we hurt our own spiritual man. When God says don't criticize, it's not because he's trying to deprive us of some satisfactory experience. What he's saying is don't go against the nature of whom I have made you to be. God is love, not God of criticism. So we were created to live in fellowship with him. And when we sin, we break that fellowship. We hinder our ability to experience the joy and peace in Christ. And our life becomes like a wilderness. Critical attitudes hurt us as much as it does other people. According to medical research, those who suffer from extreme tension have a single trait in common. Those who suffer depression, anxiety, or other tensions emotionally, they have a single trait in common. And it's been found that they are habitual fault finders. Constant critics of people around them. You see, the habit of criticizing is a very personally destructive pattern of thinking. And if criticism is wrong for our fellowship with God and criticism is wrong for us because it hurts us spiritually, then as surely it's wrong for our relationship with others. A critical attitude destroys our relationship with other people. Now, as a pastor, I frequently hear people say, I just don't seem to be able to find any friends. And before they are three sentences into their sad, sorry story, I want to say to them, do you know what? You want to know why? It's your attitude. It's your critical, negative, fault-finding attitude. Do you want to know why you're alone? Look in the mirror and look at your attitude. They don't like your attitude. Now, I don't say it like that. I'm a little bit kinder. I mean, let's just be honest. Criticism hurts our relationship with others. Who wants to spend a Friday night with someone who they know from experience will consume most of the conversation, updating them on everyone on their top 10 people or things they hate list. 
I mean, who in here really wants to spend a Friday night with an individual that is Debbie Downer? Negative Nelly. Attitude is everything, and when it's a critical attitude, constant criticism, and even complaining, it affects our relationship. And so, inevitably, there is going to be a fallout in that in relationships with others when we become known as critical people. So, if you don't get anything else out of this lesson, get this: three words: criticism is wrong. And the complaints about Moses and the subsequent consequences clearly point to this principle that criticism is wrong. I'm talking about destructive criticism. Okay. Principle two, criticism is sin. Principle one is criticism is sin or criticism is wrong. Criticism is also petty. This principle was at work again with Aaron, Aaron and Miriam who criticized Moses for marrying the Cushite woman. Basically, well, I don't like the woman he married. I don't know why he married her. Why didn't he check with us first? Why didn't he talk to me about it? I could have talked some sense into him. I would have done this. I would have done that. What? You know, don't, don't be... Criticism is petty. The real issue was not Moses' wife. That was the petty, that was surface issue. That was just an easy attack, an easy criticism. The real issue was their own jealous hearts. Oh, now, now we don't want to get into this now, do we? Now we're going to get to rubber where, where the rubber meets the road. Nuts and bolts, the nitty gritty. I'm going to start stepping on some toes, poking my finger in somebody's spirits. It's easy to talk about the surface criticism. Well, let's talk about why we have critical spirits. Because criticism in itself is just petty. Criticism camouflages three deeper problems. The first one a blend of unforgiveness and bitterness fuels criticism. When unforgiveness is in the heart, criticism is on the lips. Why? Because we're deflecting. Criticism masks envy, jealousy, and resentment. People are often critical because they are envious of the success of others. And so what do we do? We try to pull them down to make us look better. It never, can I tell you something? It never works that way. The more you criticize somebody, the further down you go and the uglier you look. See, there's some deep-rooted issues in a spirit of criticism. A critical attitude that God hates that God calls sin. Criticism itself, ah, that's the petty surface issue. Criticism also camouflages personal failures. People become critical of others because they themselves live in defeat. They become critical of others because they themselves have sin in their life. 
That's exactly what Jesus is talking about. Hey, quit criticizing that individual for what they're doing or what you perceive as wrong when you've got bigger problems. There is a beam in your eye that you can't see clearly at all. It's as plain as the nose on your face to everybody around you, but you're worried about a speck that the only person even knows that's there is the person who has the speck in the eye. See, criticism is petty and it masks deeper issues. How easy it is to become critical of others so that we can level the playing field. We want to talk about a carnal attitude. You want to talk about the flesh having control and not the spirit control. It's about, I want to make myself equal by either pride promoting myself or I want to make myself equal by abasing somebody else and bringing them down. Either way, it's wrong. Either way, that's a carnal attitude, a carnal way of thinking. That's, that's the flesh having control in our life. Criticism is, is petty, and it covers serious issues that lead to wilderness. Now, we can't get into all the serious issues, but I want you to know that your critical spirit goes a whole lot deeper than just the fact you don't like what so-and-so's wearing or you don't like what they did or you don't like how they look or what they sang or what they said. It goes much deeper than that. Understand that. Principle number three, criticism is, and this leads right into that, self-exalting. Criticism inflates self. Oswald Chambers, the great devotional writer, wrote, Beware of anything that puts you in the place of the superior person. Anything that makes you feel superior is not conducive to your spiritual life. I mean, Jesus taught that throughout the scriptures. And that's what criticism does. It takes the focus off us and my faults, our faults, and highlights me as the one who just knows and I'm critical. I know, I know what you did last night. I know where you went. Now I'm going to let everyone else know about it. Why? Because that deflects anything off of me. I'm exalting myself. Criticism reduces the pain of being in the spotlight and gives me the fleshly satisfaction of running the spotlight. See, people will find it much harder to see my life if I'm shining that glaring light in your life. Criticism is self-exalting. And God does not honor that. He wants us to approach him how? In humility. He didn't say you are the master of all, but you are the servant of all. Principle four, criticism is painful. Let's look at criticism's impact on other people. You are probably aware of the pain of someone criticizing you. Anybody here been criticized before? How comfortable is that? Did you ever walk up to somebody and say, hey, bro, thanks for criticizing me, man. Uh, thanks for telling me that my sh- socks didn't match. Or don't look good. Thank, thank you for telling me that I had a booger in my nose. I appreciate that. No, I'm sorry. Thank you for telling the person next to you that I had one in my nose. No one ever goes to the person and says, thank you for criticizing me. It's painful. It hurts. I mean, can you imagine how Moses felt? The two people that he counted on the most all of a sudden turned on him. And the betrayal must have 
cut deeply. Did you know that sometimes the one who injures you the most is the one closest to you? Too much criticism can make us feel good for nothing. We get to the point where we almost believe it. The effect of criticism can knock all the confidence and power out of our life. It's painful. Parents often leave their kids' lives in shambles by creating a household of criticism. They never measure up. The same holds true between spouses or any relationship for that matter. You don't last very long. You don't become very successful and all you hear is, well, that's not good enough. You're such a disappointment. You just don't measure up to your brother. You don't measure up to your sister. You, you don't measure up to this person. You, you're just never going to get it right. You look like this and you act like this. I mean, how much confidence is a person going to retain in their life and, and be able to be successful if that is the atmosphere that they're in? Criticism is painful. Now, let me remind you, we're not living life for people's approval. We're living life for God's approval. But man, it hurts. It hurts. Principle number five, criticism is often inadvertent. Okay, now this is a very important point. Not every person who criticizes has a wicked, awful heart. Now they can become that way if they're not careful. But people, including you and including me, often utter what we call flippant words. Careless, thoughtless words that strike others like a slap in the face. In other words, we speak before we, what? Think. Now, I know the Bible says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And it may be in there, but most of the time, should we be led by the Spirit? And we're developing that spirit of self-control. We can think and say, you know, I may think this or perceive this, but I probably shouldn't say this. But every once in a while, a verbal missile, not targeted for intentional injury, but our loose lips often do damage that we don't anticipate. And again, once you say it, can you take it back? No. I mean, notice how quickly Aaron said, we have acted foolishly. In other words, I don't think their intent was to hurt Moses. But they got very comfortable and they were very upset about other things that that critical attitude rose to the surface and they spoke. Again, that, that, that critical attitude, that's, that's, that's the, the first thing that we voice. That's that surface level. We know that there was something deeper. But they responded to it. Aaron didn't even try to defend his position. He just said, hey, we did something stupid. And so inadvertent criticism still damages people that we care about, but most of the time, it's inadvertent. However, when we become more and more comfortable with voicing how we feel and what we perceive, we run the danger in the danger of becoming a critical person 
in sinning against God. Last principle, I'll make it very quick, is criticism plugs the flow of God's blessing. Oswald Chambers made a brilliant observation. He says, whenever you are in a critical temper, it is impossible to enter into communion with God. Because criticism makes us hard and vindictive and cruel sometimes. It leaves us with the flattering notion that we are superior and that harms our relationship with God and blocks the, bless, the flow of God's blessings. God can't bless what he doesn't approve of. He may still love you. He may still show mercy and grace to you. He may still reach for you. But if you have experienced the, the, the lack of God's blessings or you have experienced God's blessings that have become a dam in your life, that just, there's just nothing flowing, you better look at your spirit, your attitude. Because God can't bless what he doesn't approve of. So it's probably not surprising that I get a significant amount of criticism. That's the position that I'm in. The higher you go in leadership, the more criticism you're going to face and experience. Now, whether this criticism is helpful or even deserved, uh, negative comments are not easy to deal with. So my greatest struggle is not to deal with the pain of being criticized, but our greatest struggle when criticism comes our way is to make sure that we don't become critical ourselves. It's so easy to retaliate, to catch the disease of criticism. Let's just put it that way. I wish I could dismiss all the criticism, but some of it sticks with me. And so if I can't dismiss it and get over it, before I retaliate because of it, what do we do? We take what remains to the Lord so that he can be our defense. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you. That's what breaks the chains of criticism from others and keeps a critical spirit from growing within us. Amen. So next week, we're going to discover how, if when, it, when, it, when I decide, when we decide that we're going to replace a critical spirit, a critical attitude, we're, we're changing our way of thinking. How are we going to do that? We're going to replace a critical attitude with an attitude of love with an attitude of love. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. Amen. God bless you. Love you all. Amen. We'll be back here at 11 o'clock for Sunday celebration.